0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode
1: 214 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Inna Hussein. She is a board-certified otolaryngologist with specialization in laryngology. She completed her otolaryngology head and neck surgery residency from Northwestern McGaw Medical Center and completed her fellowship from Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, a Harvard teaching hospital. She is now section head of laryngology at Rush University Medical Center and director of the Voice Airway Swallowing Disorders Program. She also holds a joint appointment in the Department of Communication Disorders and Sciences. Her research interests include idiopathic subglottic stenosis and laryngopharyngeal reflux. She is active on social media as an educator of all things voice, airway, and swallow, as well as an advocate for women in surgery. And if you all follow her on Instagram, she's extremely entertaining and she puts out wonderful, wonderful content. So uh, she's amazing. And I hope you all love this episode.
0: Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride
1: podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good afternoon, Anna. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Good, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to have the wonderful Inna Hussein here with us today. I'll have her introduce herself in a little bit, but she's a, a wonderful ENT that is doing wonderful education work all over the internet and sharing all of wonderful things you know about what she does and her relationship with SLPs. And it's it's a story that I just wanted you all to hear. So um, Inna, if you could tell
2: people a little bit about yourself. Sure. So hi everyone. Uh, my name is Inna Hussein. I am section head of laryngology at Rush University Medical Center here in Chicago. Uh, So, as most of you probably know, as a laryngologist, I specialize in the medical and surgical management of upper airway issues, hoarseness, and difficulty swallowing. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So I guess, you
1: know, where, where should we start? I, there's so many things, you know, that I would love to cover with you today, but I think the big thing is, you know, we work so closely with ENTs and some ENTs we have a wonderful relationship with, and some, we just don't, and they don't really understand our role or how we can work together. I had one on before that said we should work together like peanut
2: butter and jelly. And I think that was a beautiful
1: (laughs) analogy, but yeah, just love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that as a laryngologist um, within ENT, I probably work the closest with my speech language pathology colleagues. Um, to be very honest, I I think I'm closer to my SLP colleagues in terms of kind of my understanding and my kind of goals when treating patients with kind of. Um, laryngeal issues. Um, I find that even within ENT, a lot of ENTs, once they're kind of subspecialized in other areas, don't really know as much about it or, or maybe don't focus as much on these issues. And so you don't really get a totally in depth evaluation. Um, and so I usually work very closely with SLP. I always say that, you know, one of the things that any kind of healthcare provider can do for themselves is actually advocate for themselves. So if you come into a practice with the assumption that everybody knows what you're able to do just because they hired you, um, that's not doing a service to yourself or to your patients. You should come in with the mindset that like really nobody knows really what you do and it's your job to kind of advocate for yourself and do that education and teaching. And that goes for speech language pathologists who will be working with ENTs and to a certain extent goes the other way too. So as a laryngologist, even six years into practice, I find myself letting other team members know, including SLPs, like what I can actually do and offer. And so that's constantly kind of changing as you continue to grow your skill set, get more education, as our understanding of laryngeal disease changes, what we can offer changes too. And so I don't think that point should go unspoken. That really, you need to advocate for yourself because advocating for yourself is actually advocating for your patients. And that's why most of us went into this, right? was to help people with these types of disorders. Um, And so that's kind of my, one of my biggest pieces of advice, especially for people starting out, but even people who've been in practice, like you constantly need to let people know what you can do and what you're good at. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. I feel like it's something that I just say constantly, but it's so nice to hear it from you because you know, the pushback that I've gotten from some people is like, well, I've made it this far. People should know what I do, but that's not true. They don't know what we should do, but also the, the science and the technology is just constantly evolving. Um, so there's just so much more that we can do so much more that is within our scope of practice. We have such unique tools that we can use now that give us access to things that we didn't used to have access to.
2: Definitely. That's so true. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, how did, how did you get into what you, what you got into? Yeah, so um, I always tell everybody that, you know, I knew about ENT my entire life, because my mom's actually an ENT. So I'm second generation, Um, second generation women in Odo. Um, So I grew up knowing about the field. And um, so I would say that My desire to go to medical school stemmed from um, uh, some study abroad I did in South Africa, working with patients with AIDS and wanting to help people on more of an individual basis. And from there, I truly fell in love with the formal training of head and neck anatomy. I would say probably because it felt so familiar. Um, And then I knew I wanted to do something surgical in terms of, you know, kind of working with my hands kind of the lifestyle, the satisfaction from that. And so all of that kind of brought me into ENT and otolaryngology and then my kind of love of laryngology actually started when I was working at a children's hospital and I was working, our, our, the chair of that department was actually an airway specialist. And so getting to see him work with people, pediatric kind of airways, I was just fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, I was fascinated how you could help these babies breathe and get decannulated and completely changes their lives, or families' lives. And so I was like, I would love to do this, but I can't be with sick kids all day. Right. So I was like, I just don't think I could handle emotionally working with really, really sick kids. And so I was like, how do I do this? But in grownups and they're like, oh, there's a subspecialty called laryngology. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds perfect for me. Completely perfect. And so that took me down the pathway of looking for a fellowship in it. And I, yep, sure enough, did love it. Absolutely loved it. And then I was recruited here at Rush to kind of start that program. And so um, six years ago, I was recruited to start the kind of laryngology section. And I've been here since.
1: Amazing. Amazing. So how did you sort of get into the, the swallowing aspect of it?
2: Yeah, so within laryngology, the fellowship itself is focused on both voice, um, airway, and swallowing. So what brought me to laryngology initially was actually airway. That's what I, I still to this day am very, very interested in. Um, I always tell patients, you know, or people in general we're talking, most kind of laryngologists or speech pathologists you often find have some sort of singing background, and that's why they go into this field. But a majority of what I do is probably airway, and that's what I was interested in. And so with learning about the larynx and how it functions and everything came kind of more development of my skills treating, you know, uh, voice issues and then swallow issues as well. So I call myself like a general laryngologist because I kind of do it all now. Yeah, yeah.
1: What what are a lot of the different procedures that you do? I know you said you're sort of like a general laryngologist now, but are there
2: specific procedures you like to do or love to do? For sure. I mean, I, I find a lot of satisfaction in, again, airway work. So I do a lot of kind of endoscopic airway work in terms of dilations and resections working with patients with paralyzed vocal cords, doing chordotomies. Obviously, this has been a very busy time for a lot of those due to the post-COVID intubation traumas, unfortunately, that we're seeing. So our volumes of things like unilateral chordotomies and things have just exploded in the last year and two. Other things with regards to kind of hoarseness, so any sort of vocal cord cysts and nodules, varices, papilloma, um, kind of do all of that stuff. And then with regards to dysphagia, I would say Zankers and doing cricopharyngeal Botox and myotomies, um, those are quite satisfying. And usually, you know, if you pick the patient appropriately, it significantly um, improves their quality of life. So, So those are really satisfying cases as well.
1: Amazing. And how how do you interact with the SLP in those situations? Is it something like, you know, you take the recommendation from them? Is it something that they say, you know, this patient might be a candidate for? Yeah,
2: I would say it's definitely a very collaborative approach. I I really heavily rely on my speech-language pathologist assessment of the patient's swallow. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, when you see a patient in the clinic in the office and you get their history and it might make you suspicious for, you know, hmm, I'm very suspicious that this person probably has cricopharyngeal spasm or a bar based on X, Y, and Z. I need that video swallow, though, to show me what's happening. At my institution, we do a lot more video swallows than fees. And so that's kind of our primary swallow assessment. So that that kind of assessment is incredibly important because the whole reason we're doing any of this consideration for surgery and procedures is from a functional standpoint. So I need to know what, what's happening with that swallow, right? Um, and so what usually happens is I will refer a patient after I've evaluated them. Um, my speech pathologist will will see the patient for the video swallow and do that. And then we'll have a discussion based on kind of their findings. And so usually there's a little bit of a back and forth, Are there cases that are incredibly clear-cut, straightforward? Yes. And then those patients get scheduled almost immediately for these procedures. Are there other cases where it's a little bit not clear, right? So it's this idea of, which came first, the pharyngeal weakness or the cricopharyngeal bar? Or is it the reverse, right? The chicken and the egg of dysphagia management. <laughs> is is it pharyngeal weakness leading to poor UES opening? Or do they have this intrinsic CP bar, which is now causing reduced pressures to be generated? Um, and so we go often go a little bit back and forth on which way we want to approach this with the patient. And I find that incredibly helpful to have somebody to speak you know, with and collaborate with. Um, because if I went to one of my colleagues in ENT, they'd probably be like, I don't know, you're the laryngologist, right? But when I go to my speech pathologist, it's like, this is what I'm thinking. Is this how you're thinking? What do you think? You know, and then we can come up with a plan, a multi-D plan for the patient.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Definitely.
2: Yeah. So what do you, what do you think is the hardest part about being a laryngeal surgeon? I would say that's a great question. I mean, one of the hardest parts, um, there's different kind of difficulties, right? So I would say one of the hardest parts about being a laryngeal surgeon is that I, I feel like we're missing out on a lot of patients that we can help, right? So I think a lot of patients, unfortunately, kind of slip through the crack with laryngeal pathology and issues because the people who are primarily taking care of them maybe don't know that we exist or what we can offer. And so unfortunately, a lot of this, I would say, we see in more kind of the rehab um, hospitals and rehab type of patients who've been acutely very sick, and then they bounce back from long-term acute cares to rehabs, maybe to home, maybe back and forth. And so the opportunities to intervene on issues such as trait care and stenosis and all of that kind of get missed and delayed. And then they come see you months down the line where it's it's almost sometimes near impossible to offer anything that will provide long-term benefit, right? So one of the, one of the challenges is, again, advocating for myself, right? How do I get to the people who need to know I exist so that I can help patients? And a lot of that is reaching out to ICUs and fellow medical professionals and saying, you know, all these patients that come to you with these traits and everyone's a little hesitant, give me a call. Let me know. I'm happy to do training and teaching or even come and see this patient. Now not every facility has an ENT kind of on the roster. So that can be challenging. But you know what, if we know and we identify that there's a problem, at least we're one step closer to setting them up with somebody, right? The main issue is that don't even, it doesn't even come up, right? It doesn't even come up that we would need somebody to see them for their trach or their dysphagia um, until months down the line when someone maybe tells their primary care, oh yeah, by the way, no one took this G-tube. I still have this G-tube in from like six months ago. And then the primary care is like, oh yeah, we should find you someone for that. So I see that a lot, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's, it's so common with so many different fields. I think, you know, I recently, I- I wrote a book actually, just because of experiences I went through with my son. Like I have a son with special needs and he's, he needs, you know, different doctors and different therapists in different areas. And I just couldn't find them. Like I just couldn't find them, you know, and part of it is like, you know, we need to be able to find them, but I feel like therapists and doctors and and surgeons also need to do a better job of marketing themselves. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And, you know, we found this one doctor that's been, a life changer for him. And, you know, I just said, why, why do you not market? Like, why are you not out there? And he's like, well, I figure people will find me if they need me. No, like it took me a year to find you. And it was just word of mouth from word of mouth of word of mouth. So, yeah, you know, I I think what you're doing on social media is a beautiful thing. I don't know that social media is the be all end all answer for all of this, but (laughs) it certainly No,
2: I agree. I mean, I think it's about getting topics out there that generally don't get a lot of FaceTime. Right. And so, you know, talking about things, even like post-nasal drip and mucus, I mean, the the kind of support that I've received over talking about topics like that with generally within medicine are considered like not a big deal, but it is a big deal to patients. And so just talking about these, getting the ideas and the information out there in ways that's easily accessible. Um, I think that's, to, to be honest, one of the benefits of social media for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah, what are you what are you looking forward to in the future? What are some exciting and upcoming things going on?
2: Yeah, so I think I mean in terms of like work life, um, work-life type of balance and that sort of thing, you know, I'm I'm continued, I'm I'm excited to continue to grow kind of the program that I've built here. Um, and kind of expanding kind of more from a program focused um, as opposed to just individual services. And so a couple of things that we're kind of hoping to kind of solidify are things like a chronic cough program to really recruit and bring in different subspecialists. Um, I think dysphagia has a ton of room um, to continue to build and grow on um, in terms of collaboration with speech language pathologists and ENTs. And so we're looking to actually build an education forum here in Chicago where we can actually kind of have a conference and talk about difficult cases that we're seeing and um, maybe attach some CME to it. So really excited about building our educational programs around these laryngeal topics.
1: Amazing, amazing.
2: love to hear that. i love to hear all this wonderful stuff you're doing. Any, many other areas you want to talk about or? I would say that one of the other things besides just advocating for yourself for speech language pathologists is, I get a lot of messages on social media about like, how do I talk to my ENTs, right? Like how do I approach them when I have a concern about, you know, this trach size is too big or, you know, PMV, they're not tolerating it. One of the ways that I I would recommend doing that is, um, first, don't be afraid. Okay, so when you're taking care of a patient, you have really important information to share with the providers. And you can do that in a way that's like not threatening or offensive, right? You can say, you know, they actually consulted you to see this patient in the first place. So your consultation report is actually very important. So right off the bat, you were asked to see this patient. And what comes with seeing the patient is giving an opinion and response, so you know, if you see a patient and you have concerns about the trach size, I would say always please bring it up because that one decision to downsize that trach can have long lasting implications for this patient. Um, and you know that, and I know that, but everyone else on the team may not know that. And that's not anything to put fault on anybody They're worried about a lot of other things. So I would say, please speak up. Um, Please mention these things so that we can get these patients the help they need.
1: Awesome.
2: When I give advice or I'm talking to my SLP colleagues, one of the things I like to kind of remind them is that when they're asked to see a patient, Um, They're actually being consulted. So they're they're being asked to see this patient. Right. It's not that you're imposing and made your way into the patient's room to see how they're swallowing. Somebody asked you the the, the team taking care of this patient primarily asked you to come and see this patient. So right off the bat, they want your opinion. Okay, so right off the bat, they're saying we need your help please provide us your expert advice. So right off the bat, they're asking for your opinion. So what I I find and what one of the struggles is, is that I'll get messages from speech language pathologists on social media and stuff. And they'll say, you know, how how do I talk to this team about this trach size or about my concerns about the PMV or swallowing? And to me, I didn't understand that at first. I was like, well, you're being asked to see the patient. So just tell them, right? But but there's, a, but there's a difference. It's a difference when, you know, to a certain extent, it's like the doctors and the um, SLPs and somehow there's this hierarchy feeling. But I say what you need to do is kind of, to a certain extent, kind of get over it a little bit, right? You're an expert. You need to have confidence in what you are trained to do. And you're, they're asking for your opinion. So honestly, by not speaking up, you are doing that patient a disservice. Right, So in mind, it shouldn't be, oh, I don't want to offend this medical team. I don't want them to be mad at me. Your primary thing should be is I want this patient to be able to breathe on their own next month. And if they're going to breathe on their own, someone's going to need to downsize this trach. Right? So now that's very bluntly stating it. And in the real world scenario, you would probably, oh, Dr. So-and-so, I would love to talk to you about this patient, mutual patient, I'm highly concerned that this trach size will lead to difficulty decannulating down the road. There you go. Nice, easy way to say it. You've let them know your expert advice and they may say, oh, thanks for bringing it up. I didn't even realize they had a size eight trach in, Thank you. right? And there you go. Yeah, so I would say that is another piece of advice I always give um, in terms of working in these multi-teams and working in hospitals. Yeah, yeah, I think- you know, I, I was talking to a whole group of people the other
1: day, and it was, you know, they were talking about different power struggles and different personality dynamics. And I just sort of barged in and I was like, but it doesn't matter. Like, it's not about us, it's about the patient. Like, so we sort of just have right, to get exactly. over ourselves, get over our fear of whatever construct we created between us and other people. And it's about the patient. And And so I love that you just said that because I, I don't know, I, you know, I, I understand there are power dynamics. I understand there are some, you know, sticky situations sometimes, but I think a lot of the times we just created them. We, we made them up in our head, like, oh, I, I can't talk to them or they don't want my opinion or I'm not welcome in that
2: room. And I think, I think we 100% are so. And yeah. And to be honest, there's definitely um, systemic issues, right? With like implicit bias and stuff. And, you know, being a female surgeon, I'm not immune to that. Like I know what that feels like. And it took me several years before I realized that part of the problem is that we perpetuated ourselves, right? By not speaking up, you're essentially saying it's okay it's okay to continue to do this and then do it to the next group of people. So by speaking up, you're trying to break that cycle and say, Hey, I'm just going to call this out. Um, I'm not a sweetie or a honey. (laughs) I am a laryngeal expert and I am telling you as a laryngeal expert this this is my recommendation. So, you know, it's not it's always a very shared experience but at the moment you feel so alone that it's just you and it's and it's really not. It's it's everybody and so that's why I think getting strength from finding other colleagues and knowing we're kind of in this together. We're all on the same kind of path. Our journeys may be slightly different, but we're all trying to kind of move laryngeal care forward. Um, and so that kind of helps to know you're not alone. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Anna. That was beautiful. I love that so much. What are what are some things you'd like to see change in the field, Anna?
2: Yeah. So I mean, I would say the big thing I would like to see change in the field is I would love for us to all get involved more in research. Um, And again, this is both basic science and translational research. Um, I, you know, get a lot of messages about, you know, how do I show evidence that downsizing, for example, is important? And I'll be like, well, I don't know of an exact paper, but we should do one. Right. Like if you are working with patients, don't be scared by the idea of research. Right. The biggest the biggest challenge with doing research is knowing your patient population and what you're doing and asking the right questions. But most of us. You know, when we're so subspecialized, we definitely have questions about why doesn't this work? And like, what should we be doing instead? Well, that's a research project right there. That question you have can be turned into a project. Um, And I would really encourage everyone to get more involved in their kind of professional societies. A lot of them offer grants that are not that difficult to apply for. So we're not talking like, NIH grants where maybe you need a lot of research background. And some of us have that, some of us don't, but a lot of our professional societies actually have grants for research and projects, which are a lot easier to attain than we think. And the thing is, you got to, you got to try, you have to try for some of this because ultimately what makes the biggest waves and the biggest changes in our practice is research. Um, And we can't, Get to that point if nobody's doing it, and so what ends up happening is our these questions that we all have—they're all kind of the same. We never move forward because we don't figure out the answer. Yeah,
1: yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I had a conversation with, um, you know, some some big name researcher in our field, and he was talking about you know, these different techniques that he does all the time. And I was like, but where is the research on that? Like you preach about this, but where is it published? And he's like, I'm so busy seeing patients all day, Teresa. I don't have time to write this study up. And I was like, oh, that's what happens. Okay. So, you know, I, I think sometimes we just don't realize that, you know, a lot of these researchers are just so dang busy in their own mind, you know, in their own way, also treating patients. So I think it, it needs to be more of a collaborative effort, like Clinicians that are out working, you know, do what you can do to help
2: contribute to the research as well. Right. I would say that we are often very stuck in our own silos. And a lot of that truly is a problem with how healthcare is in, in this country, right? It's a system problem where everyone's on the productivity line. We're like basically the model or the Ford plant for like healthcare, um, unfortunately. And so that's what ends up happening, that you're so stuck with all of that. I will say the solution to that, obviously, is changes in the way healthcare is done. That's not really an individual control thing. But what you can control is creating bigger silos, right? So why do I see myself as, oh, I'm by myself here in my institution? Um, I'm not by myself, right? There are other people who are interested in the larynx. So how would I reach out to them and say, listen, we're each of us are individually incredibly busy, but if we take this pie and we cut it up into slices, that's very digestible, right? So if I work on this part and you give me your expertise on how to read a video swallow, and my medical student is really great at typing up a literature search, and then look at that. We all came together And we have a project. And I think that's one of the things we definitely need to do. And I wish a lot of our professional societies actually would take that challenge by basically creating think tanks where you bring people together and say you know this is a time to brainstorm and we'd like you five to come up with a project together and i guarantee those five individually would would never do a project because it's so daunting but now if all i have to do is look up the five most recent papers on this topic and my partner's looking up the research on this topic and we come together during an hour talking like three projects. I mean, it's somebody needs to break down research in this manner. This is how it should be taught to us. Yeah. Maybe in your spare time, you could work on that. And yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you teach at the university too? Did I see that? I do. Yeah. I'm actually an associate professor here. Amazing. I I would love to learn from you. I, I just love your, your, your way of educating.
2: Oh, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, I teach um, the ENT residents and then medical students who come on service. And then I lecture to the speech language pathology students as well.
1: Oh, beautiful. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful and so helpful. And I think this is going to resonate with so many SLPs and hopefully light a little fire under them to get out there and and advocate and speak up. And, you know, we are all just one big collaborative family. And I love what you said about create a bigger silo.
2: Right. Just fit more people in it. It's Yeah. yeah.
1: Any, any final thoughts?
2: No, I think that was kind of most of what I wanted to speak with you today on. Awesome. Well,
1: thank you so much. I appreciate your time so, so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at Richard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.